Yeah, so I just wanted to record a new intro to this podcast to let you know that I didn't talk only about Ansible. Today we talked, I did a, I don't know, 10 minutes on my newest work on Ansible. You could skip over that in the beginning. Then we went into uh, some clips from uh, what we talked about yesterday's podcast. Then we talked about Free Talk Live. Um, <clears throat> there was two clips on the, or three clips on the uh, underground daycare, the underground gyms, and then the uh, censorship of um, China for this new trailer. And then we um, we started playing. We definitely did a big section on the history of uh, philosophy, and we talked about uh, Plato, Aristotle, and uh, Socrates. And I think we might have had some other clips in between. So yeah, I hope you enjoy the show. And uh, this is the new intro, so uh, I'm just going to start doing that in the future, just putting a new segment in the very beginning to let people know what's going to go on during the show. Good morning, world. This is your host, Hacker Mike, coming at you at 5.29 in the morning on a beautiful clear sky. Venus and Mars are visible in the morning sky. The most beautiful sight you can imagine. Crickets and frogs are to be heard chirping in the background. It's a nice cool morning. It's still dark. <clears throat> the sun should be coming up in about a half an hour. And uh, we had a great podcast yesterday. I got a call from my dad who was really excited. He said, that was great. He said, uh, the, um, that the lady wasn't radical enough and they were trying to egg her on. And I was thinking, you know, maybe, um, she wasn't radical enough and that's why she was relegated to that stupid book collection you know, if she had been more radical, then maybe uh, she would have gotten more publishing. And um, maybe the concern, the uh, quiet voices, the people who want to um, be fair, they just won't get published because they're not polarizing enough. Well, I started listening to the No Agenda show from uh, yesterday, and they're talking about New York being controlled by uh, the Chinese Communist Party. Well, I hate to say it, but if New York's controlled by them, then so is New Jersey. And Princeton, for sure, because that's where they send all their kids to study. So, um, interesting theory. We'll have to uh, think about that some more. Um... So today I've got some stuff to talk about for work, and uh, this is going to be about Ansible, configuration management, and all that jazz. So I am going to bore you for the next hour on the topic of Ansible and Docker. So 
if you don't want to hear that, then just, uh, you know, listen to another episode or, uh, yeah, that'll be the topic for today. So basically, here's the deal. Let's say that you're dealing with developers who are going to be running some kind of Ansible job. And you want to deliver to them. Let's say you don't want to use Tower. Mm, Nice coffee. You don't want to use Ansible Tower. We're talking about just running it locally. So, let's say you package everything up inside of Docker. And um, so you have all of your binaries and all that. And you find out some way to pass in your credentials let's say through a mount and you have a way to pass in your scripts as well let's say the users are able to check stuff out using uh, git or you deliver the scripts inside of the container in case they don't know how to check things out so then you're ready to run it and um question is what parameters are you going to pass in to make it all work right well I use three major um, things first of all I pass in um, what uh, the run book or what's it called, playbook to use. Now you could just say, well, the playbook will be constant, it'll be default.yaml. Or you pass it in as a variable, environmental variable, which you can then um, when you're in Docker, you can say uh, run Ansible playbook, and then you pass in in the playbook name. So that's easy. Let's say that's a constant. So the next variable that you have is your target, what group of hosts that you want to target. Now I'm using dynamic inventories, which are huge, so I also have my new dynamic inventory filter script. But this is where We've had discussions in the past on um, some idea of a configuration management system. So I have a new idea today, which I'd like to present to you, my listeners, is that we can have two layers of dynamic configuration. So I'll have one system that will generate the inventory for another system. So, let's say I have a lot of different um, facets. So I have, let's say, 
three Kubernetes clusters. I have two databases. I have uh, 20 Lambda functions. I have all these different things I want to choose between. And the combinational explosion of them will be huge. <clears throat> right? But I still want to treat them as group VARs. So I want to have a group VAR for my Lambda functions or types of Lambda functions. I want to have a group VAR for the Kubernetes servers or the types of servers. I want to have a group VAR for the um, database server. Right? but also the combination between those. So let's say this database paired with that Kubernetes server. So I have the ability to do all of that with my dynamic inventory generator we talked about, using combinations and generating a tree of groups where each factor is put in like a lattice. But, um, That's good coffee. But right now I've been only using simple groups and simple combinations. So now I'm thinking I'll expand that out with two levels. So I'll have one system that will um, have a ton of different facets or combinations and then I'll select one item from there to work on and it will then generate an inventory file for that specific target and that target could be like environment Q QA you know Kubernetes server X database server Y all of those things all strung together to this huge target that's over-specified. And then I will generate a shell script using a first layer Lambda, a first layer Ansible that will generate the, shell, um, the configuration for a second layer of running Ansible. And it only needs to do this one time. So basically, it's a one-off where you take all of these factors and then you generate that down uh, so that next time you run it, it'll be, it'll it skip the first layer, it goes straight to the second layer. So multi-layers of Ansible used for configuration, and that will include things like local machines, developer configurations, all types of stuff so that when you run Ansible for the first time, it'll collect everything you need. So it'll have like, well, this developer's laptop has these settings, this developer has these settings, he has this username, he has a source code stored here. All of that will be available <clears throat> or made available in the configuration management um, on the first layer so that um, it'll generate then the second layer 
so we'll have a multi-layer uh, multiple layers of configuration and that way and that way uh, we can reduce the size of these shell scripts <coughs> and make everything really uh, simple um, make everything simple and easy so that's basically my idea for now um, I could go into more details um, so the first layer is a uh, power well since I'm running on Windows the first layer is a PowerShell script that's going to basically um, pull an image and then start a container and I'm also going to reuse the uh, docker container <clears throat> so this whole idea is that also you can prepare your um, you can prepare everything so that it's just running I mean in theory now this is going to get really far, but in theory you could start Ansible somehow in a debug mode or have everything loaded and it would listen on a socket and then you would just send it the individual commands to run so that it would not have to reload anything. That might even be more interesting. <clears throat> we can get there into a future version. But, uh, that's what we're talking about. Um, so we have, we have the Docker, we say run the container. So I've moved away from building, running things in the build mode. Now I've implemented my own build system, basically, where I say, um, run this image and use minus D to detach from it and keep it running in the background. And then I use, I check if that image is running, and if it's already running. I don't uh, start it again. I name it and then I use Docker exec to execute commands inside of Arrow. Or then I just generate a file um, <clears throat> in the, um, mounted file system and then I execute it that way I can put all the parameters in the file and not have to worry about passing parameters from docker from PowerShell which is kind of problematic now the files that I'm generating I could use the target directory syntax that I've used so I have a target directory slash and then the target name.sh that way I can have a unique name for target and not have to regenerate that. So that also make, would make sense. Whew. So yeah, that's um, 
that's the Docker runner. So once you have that going, then what you're running inside of Docker is an Ansible script, which is, well, a shell script. And the shell script will check if the um, cached results are there from, from the stages that are, need to be done. So let's say you have multiple stages. Right now I only have two. But um, each stage, let's say, would um, prepare shell scripts in a certain directory. And then if they're there already, we would run them. <clears throat> I mean, what is um, Ansible doing anyway when it runs tasks? It's going to prepare some temp files on the server and run them. So, now I haven't gotten to the point of caching the results of Ansible, meaning the temp, and then re-executing it, but that definitely is something we could do. So you would run Ansible, you would collect the temp files, move them to a location, and the next time, instead of running Ansible again, you would just rerun those shell scripts with the parameters. And uh, I have some modifications to eliminate the copying of modules and to simplify it. Because those temp files contain too much information. Really, it all can be boiled down to a couple of lines if everything's already installed. A couple of lines of Python, <clears throat> or even a generic tool that reads some JSON blob, some YAML blob, and then we're going to get into hard coding or not hard coding of those pieces of information into the YAML blob. Which ones are parameters, which ones aren't parameters. So we could really break this all down by taking the parameters that you want to replace, putting special values in them, and then searching for those values in the text files and using sed or whatever to replace them before you call them to make reusable Ansible without having to mess with it too much. So yeah, there's some real uh, interesting things we can do. So I'm thinking of some kind of pre-processing filter for the um, JSON data. So some filter function that you could call, like a custom one, and um, a custom executor. And if I had a pre-processor and a custom executor, then I could also create Lambda functions or whatever kind of cached functions for running the Ansible results 
<clears throat> so capturing those results and being able to rerun them very quickly maybe even with different parameters so we're going to get there for using Ansible as a programming language and as a way of preparing large programs to run quicker, faster, and with different execution contexts. So yeah. Alright. So um Yeah, that kind of sums up that gives us some a first pass overview of what we're talking about here. So I'm going to uh, <clears throat> I'm going to uh, <clears throat> switch topics now. So I said I'll talk about Ansible um, for the whole show. Well, maybe I won't. Sorry. 20 minutes in, we're going to put this on pause for now, and we're going to think about things. So now we're going to talk about some thoughts on yesterday's episode. The one which was the major surprise that really made me thought, think was the Hungarian guy who I mistook, I mistook for a, uh, a Russian because of his accent and name. But when I looked at the name written, I was like, no way, that is Hungarian. And it is true. He's a Hungarian. And he basically talks about the fallacies of our um, predecessors. Like, if we don't understand something, we just can give it a box, give it a name. And um, those names and boxes have been carried on for thousands of years, where we try to imagine some model of the brain, of consciousness, of the unknown. And um, there's some effort, he said, to just try and apply these labels as boxes and regions to the brain. And it's not working. And don't do it. It's a fallacy. And I think that's a great insight. Um, and it's a freeing. It frees you from this baggage of like, well, where is consciousness? Where is the soul? Where is emotion, right? And you're going to go through this list of, like, where is that located physically? Where can I point to the neurons that do it? And he's like, don't do that. <clears throat> so I think that's a great insight. And, um... Boy, I tried to clip his stuff yesterday. And it's not even clippable because he just goes on and on and on. He's like so intense. It's so amazing what he has to say. And he's got YouTube videos as well. And um, 
boy, that's going to be a whole topic of discussion and a whole topic of research for me to learn more about what this guy's talking about. So on that topic, Elon Musk today supposedly is going to demonstrate the neural link. So we're going to hear about that today. We'll see how that works. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and uh, well, I'm going to start listening to my daily podcasts and I will um, listen to them using that audio mp3 clipping tool so I can uh, jump around and I will uh, record some clips and add them if I find anything interesting so you'll be listening with me how's that all right let's get into today's clips so now we're gonna switch um, and listen to some free talk live the first story is about daycare going underground and then after that we're gonna talk about what we're gonna listen to secret gyms so my gym is closed but I have seen <clears throat> some places open and they have the gyms outside now in the parks people are setting up but also in New Jersey you can just go across the river to Pennsylvania and the uh, gyms are open <clears throat> now I think I might have talked about this on the show But uh, I don't want to go into too many details, but I have a gym membership I'm trying to cancel. And the gym membership, I have to send them a registered letter to a place that's not open. They're not accepting cancellations. But I heard from the regulator they'll have to accept the date that was stamped. I need to uh, actually write that. I don't even know how to send a registered letter. I guess I have to go to the post office. We do it online. Anyway, uh, let's hear this clip. The fact that things are being driven underground. We were just out, Tyler, you weren't with us, but we were out at the, the local bar here that takes cryptocurrency uh, in town. And they got their TVs on and the news and sports and stuff like that's on. And so one of the stories was uh, Massachusetts town has busted an illegal daycare operation <laughs> now that's not to say that something like an illegal daycare couldn't have been done before or wasn't being done i mean absolutely certainly, they were being right, done yeah. certainly they were being done um you know it's a way to lower costs right? mass babysitting basically yeah you don't have uh, you just don't go and get the permission slip from the government and you get some trustworthy friends who have kids and they bring their kids over and they go to work right like so as long as nobody talks then it's a successful operation. Good to go. You know, as long as nobody snitches on what's going on. You got to say that with a Boston accent. As long as nobody, I can't do a Boston accent. Yeah, <laughs> I can only do sort anyway. of a New York accent. Yeah. Right. Well, anyway, uh, so that's, and whether it had to do with COVID or not, you know, that's happening more now because, well, under COVID, you're not allowed to have daycare centers operating. And it, from what I understand, right, in a lot of places, I don't know if that's true here in New Hampshire, but this was Massachusetts, and I suspect it's it's true there. I, I don't know what the rules are, but I suspect that if it's not a large business, a multinational corporation, absolutely mm -hmm. they're not allowed to be open. How many daycare centers are multinational corporations? None. That's why they're not open. Right. So you you still have people who have kids who have to work, and they feel like they you know can't leave them at home for whatever reason. They're not old enough or whatever. 
And so they need to have them taken care of. And so the market is providing that service. Right. It's just doing it illegally now. So they've driven daycare underground. And that's not it. The story actually here is about secret gyms. Ooh. This next clip is about the gym. And uh, I shortened it a bit. I just want to give you the basic information that there are such things as speakeasy gyms now. And um, the governments can't control them. But they also have... I wonder what happened to the uh, curfew in Trenton. I haven't heard anything about that in a while. And the banning of ATVs. I saw the ATVs driving down... Four guys on ATVs with masks were driving down Main Street in Trenton through a red light, and no one's going to stop them. <clears throat> Who's going to stop them? So, you know, I, I, I really wonder uh, how any of this will be enforced if you can't even enforce the laws that you already had. I mean, who's the victim here? It's not the perpetrators who wantonly break the law. It's the, uh, it's the little people. Driven daycare underground. And that's not it. The story actually here is about secret gyms, Ooh. which are also now a thing. Not, it was probably never underground at any point in like the history of having a gym. Uh, you probably never had to have a secret gym, but now you do. Uh, the story is coming from NPR. My friend Evelyn is an immigration lawyer, and she recently had a meeting at a foreign consulate in downtown San Francisco, which, of course, is one of the most locked down uh, places. It was the first city to go on total lockdown. Remember, we talked about it like was the first week or two, I think, uh, within the whole COVID thing starting in in early March. They had a total lockdown. It was where it wasn't that where I think the uh, people were like singing out of their windows because they weren't even coming outside of their homes for like any reason whatsoever. So as she walked towards uh, the building's metal detectors, the security guards told her she couldn't bring her backpack in. So she had to leave. She was worried this would make her late, so she frantically began searching for a safe place to stash it. She walked down the street, and her eyes caught a gym storefront with one of those garage-style roll-down metal doors. It was slightly open. Evelyn ducked in under the door and noticed a guy in workout clothes conducting training and a small group of other guys in the back using exercise machines. They looked more lean, fancy fit than roidy fit bro, she said. Evelyn was dressed in a work suit, you know, the like the feds, and started, startled everyone as she came in. She sheepishly explained she just needed a place to store her backpack, which put them at ease. But with California outlawing indoor fitness centers during the pandemic, she also remarked that she was surprised to see they were open. Oh, we're not open, said one of the trainers. What Evelyn uncovered can only be described as a speakeasy gym, you know, illegal, hush-hush, like the underground bars during the Prohibition era. These underground gyms appear to be popping up everywhere, from Los Angeles to New Jersey. One fitness freak in Ann Arbor, Michigan, turned to Reddit to get her fix. Quote, anybody wants want a home gym partner or know of a speakeasy gym? So just asking openly on a local Reddit. Yeah. They, they asked, assuring readers in a follow-up post, not a cop. And somebody responded saying, that's exactly what a cop would say. <laughs> Welcome to the COVID-19 prohibition era where gym rats have gone underground. 
Governments can legislate all they want, but prohibiting stuff with eager buyers and sellers is super hard, says Jeffrey Mirren, economist at Harvard University, who spent three decades studying pro... Okay, so here's the next clip from Free Talk Live, and I think that'll be the last one from them. And uh, basically, they're talking about this new Call of Duty um, Black Ops Cold War trailer and how they depicted Tiananmen Square and caused a uh, an upri- uh, uproar and from the Chinese government an international in- incident where they were asked to take it down, and they did. And uh, they give their take on it and go off also into a whole bunch of other topics uh, on this. Well, I'm only going to clip the first part of it because I don't want to copy their show. I'm just giving you clips of information so you can do your own research. Just some little tidbits of information here. Um, <clears throat> but uh, they go into the topic of cultural Marxism, also known as the Frankfurt School, also known as the Left Agenda, which is a consistent topic on this podcast and where we're documenting um, the uh, left agenda in our higher education system uh, through different clips. And yesterday's was great. I mean, the hostility is amazing. Now, when we get into progressive versus conservative, um, it does seem that conservative is tied to religious religion as a um, Christianity as or religion as a conservative thing and for sure uh, most religions are conservative in many respects Um, in the history of scientific revolution that was crazy that uh, Galileo was trying to overturn the um, overturn the authority of the church and that's what got him killed because he thought that he could you know, find the truths of the Bible of God better than the priests. Bad move. So, yeah, um, I think, I think there's some interesting uh, things going on here. And, um, really, we need to, uh, to understand that better. Um, now, I think that there's way too simple, uh, way too oversimplification, way oversimplified, uh, conservative left versus right, etc., etc. So I don't really want to go into that. Um, but what we're talking about with uh, the Marxist idea with Frankfurt School is the destruction of the Western society, for sure, and the revolution. Um, that is pending for a long time now. So, uh, yeah, let's play this clip and um, we will continue with our uh, listening pleasure after that. Call of Duty comes out with a new game. It's like every year now. Wow. And, yeah, and they alternate. There's two different developers that do it. Right. <laughs> so now it's it's the Black Ops turn. Uh-huh. They released a new game, uh, a teaser trailer for it, called uh, Black Ops Cold War. And it's all based in the 80s and the 60s, I think that whole era, the Cold War era. And okay. it looks great. But um, as soon as they released the trailer, they had to take the trailer down and replace it with an edited trailer because it had uh, clips of Tiananmen Square in it. 
So they're mixing in real-life video clips with gameplay footage? Yeah. Well, the trailer's really interesting because it takes clips from a 1984 interview with a former KGB agent, and I'm going to butcher his name, but it's Yuri, I want to say, Bezmanov. Okay. By the way, the interview was done by G. Edward Griffith, the guy who wrote wrote Creature from Jekyll Island. Yes. And uh, in the interview, uh, he explains how um, cultural Marxism – or neo-Marxist, right? Like this concept, which by the left is considered to be a right-wing conspiracy theory. But it's the idea that communists were going to um, uh, get inside our education systems, mm-hmm. inside our government, inside our communities, and start to dismantle our society from the inside well, out. This is part of the ten planks of communism. Right. Well, and it's not – to me, it doesn't seem like a conspiracy theory. But it, what blows well, my I mean, mind is if it's not – th- if it's not a theory and there's evidence for it, it's there's it's fact, right? Like this, this right. is a fact. It's a fact that there were the ten planks, the Communist Manifesto, right? It, it that's yeah, Karl but the Marx, Communist Manifesto it? didn't suggest infiltration in order to get things done. It suggested that the, we needed to change these ten things. Okay, but but education was the mentioned. way you do it is well, you infiltrate. How else are you going to change the system if not taking it over? Violent revolution. That certainly uh, worked in the Soviet Union. Yeah. Well, so the thing is, is this video explains what's interesting. If you haven't seen it, you need to go look it up. Uh, Call of Duty Cold War trailer. Don't um, tell me what to do. Don't, yeah. just, don't tell me what to do. Before you, go on with that, the, before you go on with that, Mark, the reason you can't do it with violence is because they didn't have enough numbers. So they had to go about it the long road, which was to say to get people in these positions. Right. And they can then influence culture and influence society to be more communistic. And well, they've been very successful. It's been successful. Basically, if you say the words cultural Marxism. You better mm-hmm. be prepared to defend that. I didn't say those words. I understand. I did, yeah. He did, okay. and that's what I'm saying, is, is that it's largely considered to be just these buzzwords that were created by the right, and they mm-hmm. weren't. No. Well, and the thing is, is we've caught in America KGB agents that are working undercover, right? Like, we knew that this was going on, and it goes, you know, back decades. Well, the video came out, and it shows a lot of parallels uh, just in the messaging in the video that a lot of this stuff that Yuri Bezmenov was talking about is happening, right? You can see the parallels of communism taking over. Mm-hmm. And so not only were the – so first off, the Chinese government was very upset that Tiananmen Square was, was in this video and demanded that it be removed. And so I think it's Activision. I don't want to say the wrong developer, but they decided to take it down immediately, which bothered me because, you know, if you're going lame. to go on – Yeah, it is lame. You're going to go on this Cold War angle and stand by your principles, do what you think you want to do. You know, don't cave to this negative demand. But the other thing is everyone wants to treat this – or excuse me, not everyone. Everyone on the left wants to treat this like it's some kind of right-wing propaganda, and it blows my mind that these parts of history – that's a big <laughs> part right of the video. Wing. The video yeah. says, know your history, and there's these big mm-hmm. chunks of history over the last 40 years that we're all told to forget, or it's not taught in schools. You know. Um, and now for something completely different, we're going to get into a new podcast, a new book, Scott Swarms, The World Philosophy Made from Plato – the digital age so we're going to go into um you know what is the role of philosophy um and how does it affect us today so let's start with an introductory clip Philosophy is the partner of every serious intellectual discipline. It appears when enough is known about 
some subject or some domain to make new progress conceivable, even though it remains unrealized because new methods are needed. So philosophers help to provide new concepts, new interpretations, new questions to address problems that are currently unsolvable, but which we think can be solved. So in this next clip, he's going to talk about the role of the philosopher in other sciences. And it really strikes me as that of the internal layer of a neural network. So the other sciences are worried about the empirical nature of things, collecting data, and the philosopher is observing that and <clears throat> redefining terms, re-imagining um, experiments, and um, reordering things so that they can make new sense of it. So <clears throat> philosophy is what I would call the introspection phase of observing and coming up with new theories and sharing them and programming when you're stuck or when you need to reimagine what you're doing you need to apply your philosophical side I guess um, or your designer side or your overview you need to reimagine or revisit if things aren't obvious and they're not obvious because first you need to collect the information in the foundational layer, in the obvious layer, and then you need to sit on that. And then when you get to the next layer, which is the hidden layer, you can um, start manipulating the weights on that level for a higher level understanding. All right, let's play this clip and these cars are getting loud. So in this next clip, He's going to talk about the role of the philosopher in other sciences. And it really strikes me as that of the internal layer of a neural network. So the other sciences are worried about the empirical nature of things, collecting data, and the philosopher is observing that and <clears throat> redefining terms, re- um, imagining experiments and um, reordering things so that they can make new sense of it. So <clears throat> philosophy is what I would call the introspection phase of observing and coming up with new theories and sharing them and programming when you're stuck or when you need to reimagine what you're doing you need to apply your philosophical side I guess um, or your designer side, or your overview, you need to reimagine or revisit if things aren't obvious. And they're not obvious because first you need to collect the information in the foundational layer, in the obvious layer, and then you need to sit on that. And then when you get to the next layer, which is the hidden layer, you can um, start manipulating the weights on that level for a higher level understanding. All right, let's play this clip and these cars are getting loud. The process. On the whole, 
this dialectic is, I think, unending. Of course, there are some problems that mostly only philosophers deal with because there are as yet no specialized disciplines dealing with them. Some of these problems involve value, morality, and the meaning of life. Some involve foundations of knowledge, not of one or another type, but knowledge in general. And some involve the most fundamental types of things in reality and the concepts that we can sensibly apply to them. But in addition to that, much recent work in philosophy directly engages other disciplines. We have philosophy of law, philosophy of language, of logic, of mind, of psychology, of economics, of physics, of biology, of mathematics, and more. This is how a great many philosophers today think of themselves. Philosophers of X, whatever that X may be, engage with central concepts and aims and presuppositions of X, often to a greater degree than many of those working solely in X itself. When X is an empirical discipline, philosophers of X are not much involved in gathering empirical data, doing experiments, formulating hypotheses, or replicating previous results. They often home in on the recalcitrant problems in X and think of ways of revising or reinterpreting basic assumptions to make new solutions possible. And the point is similar, really, in mathematical disciplines as well. So today's philosophers of X play roles that in the past... So he's saying that um, the philosopher is resolving conflicts between also the categories and the systems, between two different um, inputs, figuring out what's the uh, problem. So yeah, this is... um, on the language level, on the meta level, a deeper understanding maybe. I think um, we're definitely going to uh, think about this for software in the future. Play roles that in the past were shouldered by great philosophically minded scientists and mathematicians. So because of this, I see philosophy as a kind of on-again, off-again partner of all disciplines. Philosophers are often present at the birth of disciplines. They often articulate their aims, discuss their methods and relations to existing bodies of knowledge. Later, they return when norms of now independent disciplines generate conundrums or dead ends. Philosophers specialize in conundrums, and they specialize in conflicts between different families of concepts. Their job is to diagnose and help resolve the conflicts and the difficulties. They are, of course, 
not alone philosophically sophisticated practitioners of X have themselves always done. So next he's going to introduce Plato and Aristotle, and Aristotle being the founder of science. And um, Plato seems to have born philosophy out of different sciences and tries to use it for different things, but uh, obviously it will take on a life of its own. Now, if we go all the way back to Plato, we see his conception of philosophy emphasized its connection to mathematics and astronomy. They also emphasized philosophy's role in understanding human nature and the focus in human thought on objective concepts that make knowledge possible. He also talked about human action as a rational pursuit of the good, and he tried to derive normative lessons for social and political organization. Of course, his great student, Aristotle, who was himself a great philosopher, was also a great scientific founder of many of the disciplines we know today. Wow. This next clip is really long-winded, but I'll give you a short summary. It's going to be, I think, 10 minutes, so you might want to skip more towards the end. Skip forward a couple of minutes. But basically, he's going to say that the history before Socrates was an oral tradition of a play, a saga, the Odyssey, that was repeated, and it wasn't even written down. And eventually it was written down, it was taught to the schools, and the word education meant, I guess, to learn the, um, the saga, the narrative. Yeah, so <clears throat> we're, going, we're talking about a narrative that is being repeated, and um, wow, it even reminds me, uh, I guess, of the holy books, which are just narratives that are repeated and handed down. Programs or memes that propagate, and he's talking about developing a critical uh, intelligence to uh, think about things and to rethink them. So let's dig into this next clip. I think it's actually worth listening to the whole thing, even though it's very long. I'll try and shorten. I guess I could also post-produce this thing, but for today, that's what we got. It's funny how... Um, the pre-Socratics he mentions are the philosophers before Socrates and how they dispensed with the gods, they got rid of the gods as the need for the gods in, in their uh, worldview. But not much later uh, we brought them all back or maybe they never left. I guess the Hebrew Old Testament is the basis I would suppose that is quite older. Uh, I have to actually check the timelines. Another difference, the epic poets evoked muses as real divinities, relaying truths about how real gods 
established order in the world. The pre-Socratic philosophers dispensed with muses and Greek gods. They spoke of the things that you might find in Hesiod's Theogony, like the origins and history of the sun, moon, stars, oceans, rivers, and the like, but they didn't speak of them as work of gods. And that was an important move toward naturalism. So Aristotle was the first historian of philosophy. And he said that Socrates was the first to work with definitions, to try and seek universal truths and to define them. Now, if we go to the first historian of Western philosophy, and who was that? That was Aristotle. He says that Socrates was the first one to appreciate the importance of definitions. In his Metaphysics, Aristotle says, and I'm quoting now from Aristotle or the translation, Socrates was busying himself about ethical matters and neglecting the world of nature as a whole, but seeking the universal in ethical matters. Okay, now we're getting to the meat of the, uh, of the thing. So we're talking now about Plato's world of ideas. What I know is that he said that they are immortal ideas that live under a mountain, waiting to be uncovered, to be dug up, not to be created, but to be discovered. Okay. Modern philosophy says that we create ideas, we create these forms. As a programmer, we definitely create them. Obviously, there is an infinite amount of them. So we could just be piecing together and selecting parts that exist, pre-exist, all right, but um, these exist on another plane, another dimension of types, let's say, a domain, and through conditions and logic and definition, we define what, what things are allowed to take part morning, and what things can can be associated with those types. So now we're getting into the world of Haskell, 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 where the um, types are defined by the user and their exact types with exact rules about them. So you play the role of the philosopher or whatever, defining those types and how they fit together, the algebras. Yeah, this is all uh, starting to click for me. Uh, let's play the clip. And he fixed for the first time on definitions. Plato accepted his teaching, I, I believe Aristotle means, on definitions, but held that the problem applied not to endlessly changing sensible things, but to unchanging entities of another kind. Things of this sort, he, that is Plato, 
then called ideas, or it can also be translated as forms. Now, what were these things about Plato's ideal forms? The way I put it is this. They are ways that things can be. How can things be? They can be circular, square. They can be A and B can be identical. They can be distinct. Things can be solid, liquid, animate, inanimate, and so on. They were precise concepts needed for objective knowledge. For Plato, they are given by definitions, the paradigms of which came from Greek mathematics. You know, it's interesting that the Greek word translated as form, which became forms, of course, can also be translated as shape, which gives you some sense of the importance of geometry for Plato. Indeed. So basically, um, the great philosophers, Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates in reverse order, they were using definitions to say what something is. Not to give examples, but to define it using rules. Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, definition was the entering wedge for a general insistence on rigor. When Socrates asks, what is goodness? What is beauty, truth, or knowledge? He's not asking for examples. He wants to know what these things are. That is, what it is to be good, what it is to be true, and so on. It's the same in mathematics. If we ask, what is a circle? We don't want examples. We want to know what it is for any conceivable thing to be a circle. We want a definition. And what we're told is something like this. A circle is the set of all points on a plane equidistant from a single point. All right, now we're really getting to the meat of things. The goal of Socrates is to define and objectify in this logical way the world of knowledge. Now, I'm starting to think, and then he says, apply that to yourself. So, I have been thinking if this idea of objectification can be done in a really objective manner. And I think what we've been learning in the modern philosophy is that such so-called objective truths are in fact biased. And that um, it's very difficult to achieve objective knowledge of yourself or of anything. Um, and also, I was thinking, in general, I had this thought, and I wanted to share it with you, that <clears throat> I was looking at the world, and I was thinking about how Plato had these things like circles and squares, and he thought everything was made of them. And I'm thinking, well, maybe those are just simplifications. 
right? And then I thought, well, what if everything that you see is just a simplification? That you, when you look out with your eyes, that you're not actually seeing the world as it is. You're seeing a simplified version of that world. And that even the seeing of the objective world is not going to be possible directly. Maybe observing it with microscopes and so forth and taking measurements. But um, anyway, this is getting into a really slippery slope that I'm no expert in, but it does raise questions and these are the things occurring to me, so I wanted to share them. And let's play this clip. The goal of Socratic philosophy was to extend that sort of precision, definiteness, objectivity to all knowledge. Now, Socrates' second idea was that the objectivity needed for theoretical knowledge of the world would, when we applied it to ourselves, give us the knowledge we need to discover who we are and to lead us to wisdom, virtue, and happiness. Socrates' third idea was that we can just put it this way, very directly. Personal wisdom and purpose is achievable, and it can be found through philosophy. This, I think, is illustrated by the inspiring example he set when facing death, which I present and discuss in the book. Okay, so this will be the last clip for today. And it gets into a very controversial topic. The idea that the psyche is the seat of consciousness and that truth can be discovered with courage and we can master our desires. Now, if truth is constructed, maybe consciousness or morality is also constructed as well. And this is more of a form of indoctrination. And um, let's say of binding the mind to the um, symbolic reasoning part and using that to subjugate possible. So I'm going to uh, leave this open for debate, but definitely um, we're going to meditate on this one for a while. So thanks for joining my show today. I thought I brought you some interesting clips. I should put a new intro clip on this just to warn people. And I hope you have a great day. So thanks. He also articulated something which had not been so articulated prior to his time in Greece. And that is a concept of the mind or soul or psyche as the seat of consciousness and moral responsibility 
which with proper instruction will train the will to be the ally of reason and so to master our desires. It may not be too grand to put it this way. Plato gave us a vision of truth as being there for us to discover. If we acquire the discipline, the patience, and the courage to wholeheartedly seek it.